We are uh, working through the, in the study in second, or First Peter, and we've sort of parked in First Peter chapter 2 uh, for a few, few, few sessions here, looking at that first verse uh, in verse 13, the first part where it talks about submit yourself to every ordinance for a man for the Lord's sake. And we know that it's going to be talking about our relationship to government and God and government. And as last week I'd mentioned, I wanted to back the train up and get a perspective, a biblical perspective on government so that as we go into this text, we, we understand where Peter's coming from, we understand where God is coming from, and understand our relationship biblically to both God and to, to the government. I feel like uh, this message is a little bit like uh, sometimes if you're into trilogies, you read a trilogy, you know, you get to that second book or you watch a trilogy and you get to the second book or the second movie and you sort of get done with it and you're like, okay. But by the time you get to the third one, you're like, okay, this makes sense. It all wraps it up together. And, and you realize that, that the second step is necessary. And for me, as I'm going through this, this passage in this study, uh, the second one, it's like, all right, this is, it's important. It's, it's that, that passage, a couple of passages we'll look at that I think are, are vital for us to understand in our understanding of God, government, our relationship, and how we interact with that. Now, I've always been a fan of sci-fi movies. Like as a kid, I always liked watching the different sci-fi stuff. It's especially, I like the really corny sci-fi, like from the 50s and 60s where you look and it's just completely cheesy. And you sort of make fun of it as you watch through it all the way, all the way through. There's one I remember watching as a, as a teen called when, when the Worlds Collide. And it was all about, you know, oh no, they, they hear, it, they're all the same plots, you know. There's a, there's a planet that's on, a, on its path for Earth. And if the planet, you know, is going to get to Earth, we're all going to die, and that's going to be the end of it, and we're going to go from there. And so this whole, the whole movie is based on, oh no, here it comes. We need to build, and they actually call it like a, a modern-day Noah's Ark. They need to build, a, it was called a rocket ship. And we're going to bring only so many people on the rocket ship, and then they're going to blast off and hopefully find, you know, another world or whatever. But what ensues when word gets out that this is happening, there's chaos. There's, there's uh, tumultuous times. People are trying to kill and trying to get onto the ship because everybody wants to be the one that's, that's rescued. And it's all because worlds are beginning to collide. And as we, we look at our life, we look at our world right now, we see that worlds are, are definitely colliding. When we talk from a geopolitical point of view, when we start looking at our country, we start looking at everything that is, that is happening. We see a political, we see a philosophical, we see a moral, we see ethical ideologies beginning to collide. And it's, it's doing damage. We see that it causes riots. We've seen that it's, there's lots of carnage. There's lots of turmoil that, that has happened in our country and to our beloved nation. And it's, it's saddening and it's, it's frustrating. And, and we look at that uh, beginning to, to occur and, and we, get, we should be concerned for our nation, not just for our nation, because as our nation is, and, and then as we've even talked about, part of the purpose is to protect us and protecting us for the, the sake of the gospel, to be able to share the gospel, and we want to be able to have those opportunities. So as we, we start to see everything coming, coming against and, and starting to have this, this constant uh, seeming collision course, we, we have to look and say, okay, what's happening? And, and let's be honest, the Christian worldview has been continually at, at odds with the non-Christian worldview. And as a Christian worldview, it's, it has to be more than a political view. Our Christian worldview is more than just our governmental perspective on how things are happening. 
our understanding has to be consistent with Scripture, even for government, even for God. And it should impact how we view, how we look at what is, what is happening in our, our life. We talked last, last week that as a believer, my Christian worldview, your Christian worldview, it demands that every aspect of my life is coming in contact and is in, in a line and in accordance with the mind of Jesus Christ. And so as the scriptures lay out government, as the scriptures lay out God's relationship to government, as the scriptures lay out our relationship to both God and government, we have to, we have to come in accordance with that. And if we're not, then it's not God who needs to change. It's not the scriptures that need to change. It's my interpretation, my understanding needs to find itself in line. And it's becoming increasingly easy for us as believers to see where our worldviews are colliding, is it not? Start to, you start to look. We, we have differences maybe with some on human rights. We start to look at work ethic. Should we work? Should we not work? Should we just continue to take from the government as long as the government's going to give me a handout? Why, why work? Well, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So how does, that, how does that jive when we start looking economically? What about gender? Definitions of gender. I mean, how do you define a family? How do you define a marriage? How do you define a boy, a girl, a man, a woman? Things we never thought we were going to have to figure out and do we're seeing these ideologies begin to, to come, come against each other. Concepts of the, the thought of abortion, uneducation, economy, the goodness of mankind. Is man intrinsically good or is man intrinsically bad? Which, which way do we view? We know biblically man is not inherently good. There is, there is an evil, there is a nature, there is a sin, sinfulness to them. And we could go on and on and on and on. And we see our worldview, our pers- biblical perspectives on life coming in collision not only with the, the far, you know, fringes of society, but this is becoming very mainstream in our lives. So should we be surprised by these constant courses? I would say no. I mean, as we, we talked, since the beginning of time, God has been governing people, and we know that mankind failed. And because mankind has failed, it has completely thrust us into this fallen state of, of humanity, and we know that man refuses to follow the dictates of their conscience. So they are, they are instituted, God instituted human government to help to, to direct, to help to put down evil, to help praise righteousness. And God, God creates human government so that we would, because by nature, if we're just left to our conscience, we know that by the end or beginning of the flood time in the Bible, everybody, it's wickedness across, across the earth. And so God placed an authority in our lives who are above us as humans. Now, none of us desire to have authority above us. It's just, maybe some of you do, but I like to be self-autonomous. I like to make my own decisions. I like to have my own way, and I don't like to be told what to do. I want to do my thing. But the authority that God has placed over us, even with the human government, as we talked, they are not the ultimate sovereign. God is the sovereign of the universe. God is the one who grants authority to the authorities. So in granting authority to them, God ordained his intended purposes for these authorities. And we, we left off last time talking about that they are to punish evil, that they are to praise that which is good. The government is supposed to be promoting peace and justice and, and rendering justice in an equitable way. And as we, as we talk about that, and even as we will continue to go further, the, the reason for that is not just so that we're going to have a happy-go-lucky life. The purpose, even as 1 Timothy talks about chapter 2, verse 3, 4, 5, the purpose of the government promoting peace is for the sake of the gospel. The purpose for another institution, the church, is that we are worshiping and we are witnessing. So God is continually bringing the institutions that he has ordained 
to a purpose, to a purpose to promote the gospel. And he's using them. And when they function correctly, the gospel is able to go out on a consistent basis. But I think here's where the Bible gets interesting. When you start taking, and I, I know the Bible's always interesting. Don't misquote me on that. Um, but when you, when you start looking, okay, human government happens. Noah's done. And, and you start really with Noah and his, in a family. And then all of a sudden, when you, when you start looking at Scripture, you have Noah and his family, and then all of a sudden you have God calls out Abraham from the land of the Chaldees, from Ur, and he's going to make a promise with Abraham. He's going to make a covenant with him that I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a, a seed, a many, many, many descendants. I'm going to bless you, and through your nation we'll all be blessed. So you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all their descendants, and you have this clan that starts. And then we know by the end of the book of Genesis, this clan is found down in Egypt in, in the world power of the day as slaves down in Egypt. But when they come out of Egypt, they are a nation. There's millions of them. They wander through the wilderness and they eventually find themselves settling in Egypt as a, as a or not in Egypt, excuse me, in Israel, in the promised land as a great nation under Joshua. But what's happening in the rest of the world during that time? Have you ever thought about that? Like, it's not, it's not just what happened in the Bible. There's, there's a whole bunch of other things that are happening throughout, throughout the course of the world. I mean, the, the Aztecs and the Mayans are building pyramids. Egypt's already built, build, been building pyramids. Uh, the Chinese dynasties are already, the, the Shang dynasties have already been going for, for decades. So there's, there's other stuff that happens. And I think it's important for us to understand that when we look at the Bible, it's not just a, a history book. It is a history book. But the world was living and understanding that they are ruling under this concept of human government. God is going to be doing something different with Israel. But everybody else all around the world is still functioning under this idea that God has said, mankind is to rule mankind in, in my stead. The Bible, though, is an accounting of man's redemption. It is the story that God has said, how I am going to bring fallen humanity back to me how I'm going to interact with them and how you are to interact with the sovereign God of this universe, how he is governing through that. It's not intended to be a history of the world. I know that history is his story. I understand that. But the Bible is not intended to let you know about everything. It has a very Middle Eastern perspective. It has a very direct perspective in all that's happening. And so even when he's speaking of other nations, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, there's still that perspective of we're looking at one section of the world and God has an intended purpose for us with his word. It's to understand how do we get from fallen humanity to all of a sudden worshiping around the throne of God. And he, he's moving us through that, but he tells us how he interacts with people and how we are to be interacting with people and how we are to interact with God. So as we look at world history and we look at God governing in world history, it is God taking the story of his people and weaving it through world history. And it comes in context. It's not meant, scriptures are not meant to give us a, a page by page of everything that happens. Those of you who went through the numbers series with me, you know there were times where all of a sudden you turn a page and like 30 years have passed by. It was not intended to give us every single accounting of every single thing that happened. So God is looking in redemption story and saying, hey, this is how I'm interacting with people. And I'm governing people. And he does that in, in a great way. And so as he, he breaks off, not from all the first, the first 9, 10, 11 chapters of Genesis, all about human history, the beginning of the world, how the, world, how the nations began. But then you start getting into a different perspective. And God says, let me tell you how I was working with Israel. And let me tell you how I am moving the, the, the world toward 
my son. So Israel's in Egypt. We know that Israel for a short time is uh, truly only a nation for about 700 years, which is really weird when you start doing the math and thinking about it. They, they are, as a nation, independent of others, only going to be a nation for about 700 years total. Now they're always going to be a nation, but they're often under somebody. Now Israel, when it, when it uh, as a nation, started coming out of Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, and God says, I'm going to rule. They became what's known as a theocracy. They were directly ruled by God. The other nations of the world were being ruled human government, mankind ruling for mankind. But God says, I'm going to do something unique with Israel. We're going to be a theocracy. And then there's another term that gets thrown out in theology. It's called theonomy. From thea and namas, meaning God law. They were also to be directly ruled by God's laws. Now this was unique to Israel. Israel was directly to be ruled by God and ruled by God's laws. We've often, we may not use these terms directly, but it does come up when we start thinking politically from our perspective. Have you ever said or thought, oh, it would be really nice if God would just sit in our governor's chair. We, we, need, we need a Christian there. If we just had Christians in D.C., then everything would be, it'd be so much better if we did it. Our problem is that our government has removed the Bibles and we are no longer following God's laws. If we just had God's laws in America, we'd be completely fine. We'd have no problem. The Bible's never intended to be a code of laws. It's important for us to understand. It's not intended to be a code of laws except for a certain people. The Bible is not intended to be our constitution. It's not intended to be the constitution or the whatever it is of Russia or China. The Bible is how God interacts with his people and how God brings his people along and how God expects his people to interact with others. It's not a constitution. It's not intended to be a constitution. It was, however, a constitution of sorts for Israel. And that's where the Mosaic law came in. So as God writes the law, gives it to Moses, talks to them, he says, this is a civil law. It's a religious law. Here are the moral laws that you are to follow as a nation, Israel. And it's to be followed by anyone. Uh, it was also to be followed by anyone who's not a Jew, but wanted to be a proselytized Jew, saying, we're going to submit to this. We're going to become part of this nation. We're going to, to follow. And there were those individuals who came out of Egypt and who did submit to, even like Rahab, she would have to submit then as a proselytized Jew, though not a Jew by birth. God's law through Israel's constitution was not intended for other nations to adopt. It was not for the Philistines to, to, to adopt. They could become part of the Jews, but they weren't supposed to say, we're going to practice a Philistine version of the law. They could follow, but the Philistines couldn't have their own priestly line, could they? No, because the priestly line had to come from Aaron. The Philistines could not have their own uh, uh, sacrificial system in their own temple because it was, it was to be there with the Holy of Holies and with the altar. And with, it was never intended for all these other nations to just simply follow the, the, the 100% law that, that God had said. What's interesting to me is even with God's ruling, by the end of the book of Judges, what do you still have? Everyone doing right in their own eyes. But we have this concept sometimes that if we can just make everything Christian, it will all be perfect. If everything is completely 100% under God in this, it won't happen in this world. I don't want to be a, a naysayer or a doomsdayist, but that's, that's for the kingdom. That's, that's not here. 
The people who had what we want, oftentimes, what did they want? They wanted what we have. You ever think about it? Israel gets to the end of the book of Judges, and what do they want? They want a king. They, they said, we want a king. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, the United Kingdom is going to be there for about 120 years. And in 100 and 120 years, Solomon, or Saul through Solomon is going to be there. Now Israel is no longer a theocracy. They're going to become a monarchy. They're going to have a human government, a human ruler who's going to be there, but they're still to be theonomous. They're still following the laws, the laws of God. And as we, as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, which we've already, I'm not going to spend time because pastors are already doing all the 1 Samuel stuff. It's not my place. He's got that one. But what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Verse, verse 7, we see the people saying, the Lord said to Samuel, after the people said, we want a king, we want a king. The Lord says to Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people in that day, for they say to thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. They rejected the government that God had established for them as a people. They said, we don't want what you're offering to us, God. You, this is what you've said, but we don't want what you have placed over us. They've rejected God's rule. And what happens in those verses that follow, 10 through 18, you can read through them. But what, is, what does Samuel tell the people is going to happen? You're going to be taxed. There's going to be conscription. Your, your sons are going to be brought into military service. Your, your daughters are going to be made servants. The, the, your land is going to be taken. You're going to be given all this tribute. And yet the people still say, down in verse 20, we want a king that we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us. Who was the original judge for them? It was God. And go up before us and that he may fight our battles. We want to be like the nations. Do Christians ever make political perspectives or statements or thoughts? Do they take it from the world ever? Do we ever get so riled up by the things of the world that we find ourselves cheering for some guy named Brandon and we have no clue? Because we're all like, hey, that's a worldly perspective. It's not respectful for a position that God has placed in our lives. Do we find ourselves ever looking and saying, well, the government says this and I'm just going to do it, even though it may not be right, and giving in to maybe some things that as we look at from the scriptures, saying, well, we're never going to, we're never going to see abortion overturned, so we're just going to give in and say it's okay, no big deal. I just won't, you know. We still have to look and say, wait, my pro political perspectives my respect for the government, my perspective on the government cannot be shaped by the world. My perspective has to be shaped by God. But Israel allowed their perspective of what they wanted to be shaped by the world, by everything they saw around them. They said, that's going to be better than what God has placed in our lives. That's got to be better than the way God is doing things. And we can easily find ourselves doing that in our society. There's got to be something better, God. You've got to... This, this isn't right. This, this, the person in office, I, it, it's just not working. You, you, you did something wrong, and we want something different. We, we have to watch our political perspectives. And what happens to Israel? They're divided. They're conquered. Think about Israel for a second. They, they, you, we, I have this perspective. They're looking, man, they had everything. God ruling. They had God's laws. Everything should have worked out fine. But the northern kingdom, you have all these kings for all these years, and they're all evil. They're all anti-theistic. They are against God, practically. They are practical atheists living in their life. Well, Judah, maybe that's better down south after the kingdom divides. You have all these kings who are evil. You have a couple who are, they start off good, but they end up evil. 
You do have some in the southern kingdoms who are good. And you have all these kings that are happening there. And yet still, what happens with Israel? They continue to slide. They continue to fall in sin. They continue to go away from God. But they had God as their ruler. They had kings who were supposed to end laws and religious laws. They had, they had all this Old Testament. They had the prophets. It should have all worked out, right? But because of the fallenness of humanity, our sin nature is so, so strong. It causes us to drift. Not just the leaders, but those who are following the leaders. And as we look at our relationship to God and government, we have to understand that our sin nature is strong. Our sin nature pushes us to not want to submit to what God has established. Our sin nature is very strong and makes us want to go away from all that God has designed and ordained in our, in our lives. So even in a kingdom which is to be ruled by God, and his rules, human rulers still fall short because they are fallen. But let's not begin to think that putting a godly man in office is going to make the world perfect. They, even, even with David, man after God's own heart, it still was not a perfect kingdom. There were still issues. There was still sin that occurred. So remember, the institution of government is not the only institution that's made up of sinners who fall short. Think about that. As a family, as a church, we're, we're institutions ordained by God and yet we fall short. And if I as a father am falling short, do I still expect my kids to obey and submit to me? Yeah, because it's right. In a church, do people fall short? Do leaders fall short? Yet does God still expect us to follow his word and follow the ways that God expects? Absolutely. And yet, somehow we'll take a different perspective sometimes when we look and, well, the government's falling short. They're all sinners. They're all, they don't, I don't want to follow them. You're right. They're imperfect sinners. But yet, I still have a responsibility, responsibility biblically to be submitting to be following what God's word says in my relationship to our government. Israel becomes a kingdom within a kingdom. And I think that's important for us to understand, and I'll show you why, and we're going to see that even more in the First Peter accounts when we talk about it. Remember what happens to Israel. They're taken away into exile. Assyria takes them away. Babylon's going to take them away. Then they become a, they, they're under Medo-Persia. And then eventually they're going to return to the land under Nehemiah and others, and, and they're going to resettle in Israel. But when they resettle, they'll experience freedom, but they're not completely autonomous. As a nation at this point, even the rest of the Old Testament, once they start taking away into exile, they are always a kingdom within a kingdom. There's always somebody over them, and they're having to figure out how to relate and to do that. By the end of the Old Testament, we see that they're freely worshiping in the land under the rule of Persia. Now, it's, it's interesting because when you, when you go from there and you turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, 400 years of human history, almost you know, a good chunk of the United States history is turned in one page. They go from, they go from being under Persian rule to now they're under freely, freely, I say freely, worship, or functioning under the authority of Rome. 
Now, in that whole time process, there's been a whole other uh, empire, world empire, Greece, that has been over them. And they've been through that. But they are allowed some freedom. They're allowed the temple. They're allowed Sanhedrin. They're allowed to have some local rule and some local government that's there. They did experience a brief bit of freedom as a nation from 140 to 37 AD under what was called the Hasmonean dynasty and the Maccabees and the, the revolt that occurred. And there, there was some freedom where they were an autonomous nation. But in 36 AD, Rome says there's, there's been too many upheavals. There's too much problem with these Jews. They had too many issues with Israel. And they set a king, a king over them, a puppet king, but a ruler over them by the name of Herod the Great. So now within, I mean, look at the timetable. Within one generation of Jesus, Israel has now just went from free to now back under the rule of Rome. So there's that, there's that freedom that has been taken away. They've lost it. They had it. They were their own people. And now there's this government that's coming in that's being oppressive. This government's coming in and demanding taxation. There's this government that's coming in and saying, you're not going to be able to do this. You're going to have to worship this way. You're going to have to do this. And the people did not, they did not like it. Now we know the story of redemption continues and Jesus Christ comes, dies on the cross, and that people are no longer required to follow that sacrificial system of the law but now they must respond to God by faith by putting their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation as the final sacrifice that occurs. And God institutes, beginning at Pentecost, the church, and he's governing and working in the church. And we are his program that he is working through at this time in relationship, and we are in relationship to human government. Now, all through the Old Testament, Israel was to be ruled by God and God's direct divine law. We, we see that. God never intended for every nation to be directly ruled by him or by his law. God has always desired, though, for people to accept his way and his rule, whether it was following the Mosaic system or through Jesus Christ by faith. God says, Israel, follow me. He says to us, follow me. He says, here are my rules. Here are my ways. It's been throughout history. God is governing people. God expects us to follow his commands, his way, his rule. And that's prompted people to say, well, there's different types of kingdoms. Do it. No matter what type of kingdom, no matter what type of government, if we find ourselves, God forbid, in some weird way in, in 10 years, in some insane dictatorship in America, we still have a responsibility as believers to be responding to God's word the way that God intended for us to, to respond to it. We expect, we expect our missionaries around the world to be following the government laws. We expect believers in other nations. The, the human government is there. God's principles, God's rules is saying, you follow my ways, you work it out, you wrestle through it, even in the cultural cir circumstances you've been in. And, and this idea, it, it drives people at times to say, well, if God desires for all people to believe, to submit to God's ways, and God's, God desires everybody to be under God's authority and God's rule, why not just force people? Let's just salvation by the sword. Let's do that. Constantine tried it. The, uh, the Inquisitions tried it. It, it. it doesn't work. Some people have looked and said, well, the world is, you know, would be better with more Christ and more Christians, and it seems to be getting better and better. So if we can establish the correct type of Christian rule in government, the correct type of Christian rule in this world, then God is going to have to, or God will come with the second coming 
and Christ, Christ will return and everything will, will start this kingdom, and it'll be great. There's, there's, a, there's a huge problem with that. Is the world getting better and better? No. Now, that was extremely popular in the late 1800s into the beginning of the 1900s, but something happened in the world that radically changed that. The world wars. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, oh, wait, we're not getting better and better. And this idea of post-millennial theology, it, had a, it rose its head a little bit again until 9-11, and people realized, again, humanity is not getting better and better. We're not headed in that positive direction. Do we look and say, well, in order to facilitate a more godly government and thus a more godly nation, maybe we should only vote for Christians, and if no options like that exist, then we just don't vote. That's been stated by Christians in today's age. Well, there's no, there's no Christians to vote for, so I'm just not going to vote. I would love to have Christians on the ballot to be able to vote for, who, who have that, those God perspectives. But I need to look when I'm voting, when I'm, when I'm relating to my government, saying, okay, which individual is going to best represent and best help the, the, the cause of the gospel? Whose platform and policies in person represent some of the, some of the perspectives of the Bible and of, of Christianity? There, there may not be a good choice. Sometimes we're going to plug our nose or we're going to pull the lever, okay? It's, it's, it's there. But to look and say, well, I'm just not going to do it, that, that does not help the, the perspectives that occur. Well, if we can just get believers into office, we'll hear people say, then it's going to be well with my soul. Well, Israel had that office, all that happening, and yet it wasn't a perfect environment that they were living with. If we could just do, you know, possibly the government will evolve into a kingdom, or at least the beginning of it. The government is, no human government, we'll talk about this in a second, is going to evolve into the kingdom of God. It's theologically wrong. It will not happen according to the scriptures. Maybe we should simply just forget all this government stuff, simply cloister ourselves together, refuse any adherence to the rules except for God's word. Wow, that sounds really great, but it, it doesn't work. And it definitely doesn't work for the spread of the gospel which is part of what we are called to, to be doing. All these have been tried in Christian history. They've all failed. Why? Because the church, number one, is not the kingdom of God. We are not the kingdom of God. Despite what some popular songs nowadays are singing, despite what popular theology may say, we are part of the kingdom. Will you be in the kingdom if you're saved? Absolutely, you'll be there. Is, is, is Christ ruling in our hearts? Yes. But is he ruling on the throne, the physical throne here on earth? No. The, is this world his, his throne, his kingdom right now? No, it's not. So yes, we have part of the kingdom, but the church is not the kingdom of God. The church is going to be raptured away, and then later on in, in end times, the kingdom will be established. We'll be part of that but we are not the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is not of this world. Let's go to Daniel chapter two. The kingdom is not of this world and the government is not God, which I know you're all saying amen to. I, I get that. We're like, you, you, praise God that the government is not God. Any government, not just ours, that any government run by fallen sinners is, is not God. Let me ask you this question. When does human government... When does human government end? When, when Christ returns 
And what is established? His kingdom is. So that means that human government is going to continue after the church is what? Raptured, and it's going to continue through the tribulation, and that it's going to be moving toward a big one-world global government run by, a, run by the Antichrist, empowered by Satan, with the false prophet working and doing amazing things, and people are going to follow. Remember what it says, even that uh, in Revelation 13, and I think in verse, or chapter 17 as well, it talks about that the whore of Babylon is going to drink the blood of the, prophet, or the, of the saints, be drunk with the blood of the prophets, or the, of the saints, sorry. There's persecution that's going to come. It's all going to be coming, but that human government is still going on. Now, we know there'll be more revelation that'll occur during that time, but is, does it stand to reason that New Testament saints are still called to follow the Word of God? If they're a follower of Jesus Christ, they're still called to follow the Word of God, Correct. Which government's going to be worse? Where we're at or where we'll be at? They will be at. And yet they're still called to have respect, submit. Maybe there'll be some change in revelation that'll come through the prophets, through the, 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 two, the two witnesses, some of that that may occur. But there's still that dynamic that's there. Rome, pretty bad government. When does human government end? Daniel chapter 2 reminds us that government is not to become the kingdom of God. Do you remember what happens in that passage? I guess I'll catch up to y'all because you're there. Daniel's always that book I always skip over, like I keep going back and forth between Ezekiel and all the other minor prophets. Daniel chapter 2. You, you look down in, in verse 34. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar's having the dream, his statue, all the kingdoms of the world. It's given that perspective there. We know that it's not all, again, but it's that perspective of redemptive history, what God is doing. And what, what happens in verse, uh, down there in verse uh, 34? He says, Then you saw a stone which was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken into pieces together and become like the chaff of the, uh, the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this stone that's cut without hands breaks the image of the kingdoms. The wind, the, these great monstrous kingdoms of the world are just, they're just like dust being blown away. And this stone, this kingdom of God becomes this great mountain. It's not the kingdoms of the world that become the kingdom of God. It is something different. The God of heaven then sets up a kingdom in verse 44. You notice down in verse 44, it says, in those days the king uh, shall, uh, of, of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Government today, no matter how good it may get, is not going to become the kingdom of God. So to hope and say, well, we can revolutionize it and bring in and make the kingdom come, the kingdom is coming on God's timetable. That is God's, he knows. He has established it. 
So we cannot look and we should not look as believers and just say, if we can just make everything Christian, the world's going to be a, a, just going to be better. Well, there will be some betterness to it because you'll have more believers. There'll be better morality. There'll be that. But we can't have this false hope that just says, hey, stick a bunch of Christians in and everything is going to be, to be there. This is one of those moments when the world, the worldviews collide in Daniel. At the end of the time, the, the stone comes in and crushes. But there's another time that the worldviews really hit home hard. It's, it's in the Gospels. It's with Jesus Christ. And we're going to briefly look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Daniel describes the rock as it crushes the kingdom. But when Christ comes the first time, it is a moment of epic worldview colliding, going against each other, crushing each other. And there's, there's lots of activity that occurs supernaturally, spiritually. And in Mark chapter 12, there's going to be a question that's going to be asked to Jesus. You're very familiar with the passage. You're very familiar with the response that occurs. What happens when human government and those who desire a theonomy, rule laws of God or a theocracy, just God as the ruler and Jesus Christ when they all collide? What, what occurs when we, we have that perspective? Now, in Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, you're going to have three people groups that are, that are present there. You're going, to have, um, you're going to have the Herodians and the Pharisees, which really seem like strange allies because they're, they're really not on the same, they're not on the same team when you, when you start looking politically how they, how they view things. They're going to set up a trap for Jesus in verse 13. They're going to ask him this question uh, down, in, down in verse 13 that, again, familiar with, it says... Uh, they set up a trap in order to catch him with his, in his words. So they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to trick up Jesus. And why are they doing that? Part of the reason is, if you look back in verse, chapter 11, verse 18, Jesus is doing all these miracles. People are starting to follow, and they're not liking that. And they're afraid to arrest him because they're, fear, they're fearful of the people. And they're fearful how the people are going to respond. So they've got to figure out a way to try and get the people to not be happy with Jesus so that they can maybe arrest him and destroy him and, and be done with him. So the political background that happens here, the Jews, again, we mentioned, they just lost their freedom within the last, the last you know, 30, 30 years or so. They're not, they're not thrilled about Rome being around. Now, there's a group of people who are very extremely anti-Roman. They're known as the Zealots. They, they had nothing, no positive to do anything with, with the government. There's a group of Jewish individuals who are very pro-Roman. They're known as the Herodians. They would do every, they would, they would, they were buddy-buddy with Rome. They were right up next to them, making everything great, and they did everything to advance their situation in life with the Roman government. There was a group of Jewish leaders we know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, they sought to figure out, okay, how do we live with these Romans? And yet, how do we live out our Judaism? And they were, they were constantly trying to figure it out. And then there was the masses, everybody trying to figure out what's going on in the middle. But the Pharisees, who are not a big fan of the Romans there, and the Herodians, who are completely pro-Roman, we love the government and everything the government does. And then those who are like, I'm not real sure. They come together to, to trick up Jesus. And they really set a great trap. It's, it's a good question. Because when they ask Jesus, is it lawful, verse 14, to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
from a Jewish, a Pharisaical perspective, they're asking, do we pay taxes to this godless pagan government? You know, this is idolatry. They felt it was idolatry that was, that was occurring here with the coins. We'll talk about that in a second. Why would we give money? Why would we submit to Rome? Why would we give, they're doing all these things that we don't agree with. Why am I gonna give, pay my taxes? I just need to not do that. Why would, I, why would I pay that? Why would we do anything to further this Roman culture? We don't like it. We like our Jewish culture. We don't want Roman culture to go on. So why would I pay my taxes? Why would I support this government? Why would I get behind and do any of this? Am I the only one who's never thought that on April 15th? You know, it's like, oh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do that. You know, some of the young adults were joking with me. They're like, it's always funny when, when college students start first getting those moments where they gotta pay taxes, really pay taxes, and they're like, the government takes so much money. I'm like, yeah, get used to it. Okay, it, it happens, okay? It's part of where we're at. And so what they're saying is if Jesus says pay taxes, then maybe the people are gonna turn on him because the people don't wanna pay taxes. You know, if, if, if Pastor and I got up in the next couple weeks and said, hey, we're gonna start encouraging a 75% taxes, you know, for, for the government to impose upon us, you're all gonna be like, what? You would not be pro, <laughs> pro us. You'd be like, yeah, no. You're, that's what they're hoping for. You know, from the Herodian perspective, these ones who are pro-Roman, if Jesus says, don't pay the taxes, then he's a seditionist, then he's a rebel, he's a revolutionary, and we can, we can squash them. In fact, that's why Pilate's gonna be around, because he was part of squashing the, the rebellions that were happening by the Jewish people. That was one of the reasons that Rome started to put a presence all in that area because the, the Jews were constantly rebelling and wanting to, to go in against God. So the question, is it lawful? Law implies authority over. So Jesus, are you saying that, that Caesar's our authority? That he's the one that we're supposed to submit to? Because tribute implies submission. If I'm giving, it means that they're over me and I have to pay this. I don't have any say in it. Otherwise, there are consequences. I can choose not to pay taxes, but there are going to be consequences that, that happen. Caesar, we're going to pay this to Caesar? Is he then considered our king Jesus? Is that, is that what you're saying? This is not just simply a, a conversation about taxes. There's more to it. And you say, well, you get all that from money. William Barclay, a, a commentator, talked about the coins during the, the Bible times were considered a sign of power, authority, and kingship. A king's reign went as far as his money. You have an idea of how far, if I, if I came here and said, hey, I want to pay you, you know, tonight with loonies and toonies, probably there'd be one person, Georgiana, be like, okay, you can pay me because it's like Canadian money and you're all like, it has no, it has no effect here. You know, if I, if I want to throw out yen to you, you're like, this, yeah, you could take it to a bank. But in, in Bible days, that wasn't the case. As Caesar's empire went out, his money went with him. And the extent, so for the Jews to be using Caesar's money, there was an implication that said Caesar is reigning in our area. The image on the coin demonstrated who it belonged to. So this was Caesar's money that he was allowing the people of his empire to use. And using a king's money was an agreement by the people that the laws of the state, they, they would recognize the political power, the political authority over them as an individual. So when they are asking this question to Jesus, it is not simply, should I just pay my taxes? They are looking and saying, are you saying he's our authority? He's our king. 
We are in submission to him. You've got this whole anti-Roman governmental section of Jews who are, they're, they're a powder keg, constantly ready to, to go off. So Jesus asks for the penny. The, the word is in the King James. It's a denarius. They didn't have pennies in Roman time. They had a, a denarius. Denarius was a silver coin that had the head of Caesar stamped on it. That's a, that's a picture of one of them uh, that's there. And he uses the word here for an icon, something that has been stamped, something that's often used as a picture of potentially idolatry. But Jesus says, okay, it's stamped on here. And the superscription on it reads, because remember, he talks about in the passage, they, they talk about the, the stamping and the superscription. He says, verse 16, whose image and what's the superscription? What does it say? It said on the superscriptions, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the flip side, it said Pontifex Maximus. Divine means God. So why do the Jews not like this? What's it claiming about Caesar? He's God. This is a blasphemous. For them to hold it, they did not even like to have the coin. It was blasphemous, saying that Caesar is God. Pontifex Maximus, does anybody know who else nowadays is called Pontifex Maximus? It's the Pope. Okay, it's, it's, it, the word is a high priest. So there, there's a religious dynamic, there's a political dynamic, there's a divine dynamic. The Jews did not like this coin. They hated the coin. And they hated giving money to Rome as it was. But let alone giving this coin, was, it, was, it contained idolatry. It contained blasphemy. It was the, the stamped image of this one who claimed to be God. And you want me, Jesus, you want me to give this coin, this specific one? They're, they're setting this, this trap for him. So Jesus' answer is more than just, should we pay taxes, although that's true. What is he saying to them? I believe he's saying first, be a good citizen, even if you think the government is bad. Rome, not, not a great place. It was a crooked lot. They'd rip you off when they could. They'd swindle you when they could. They'd cheat you when they could. They're not monotheistic. They're not pro, pro-Jehovah. They were not, it was not a godly government by any stretch of the imagination. Did they do a lot of good things for the gospel's sake? Absolutely. They did. I know that probably sounds crazy to think, but there was the Pax Romana period. It was a period of peace which allowed for the spread of the gospel. They built lots of Romes which allowed Paul and others to travel with the gospel. There was freedom. There was ease. There was the, the, the law and order that was there that allowed the gospel to go forward. They fulfilled, they were fulfilling in a lot of ways what God said the government was to be doing. Now there was a lot of ways that they weren't. And ironically, the, the Jews are the thorn in their flesh. But historically speaking, when you still look at it, Rome was not as good as our government is today. They were, they were still worse. It was still crooked. It was still perverse. It was still not where we wanted to, would want to be. And yet, God looks at him and says, okay, that's where it's at. But how are we going to answer? He says, still be a good citizen even if you think your government's horrible. Because he's going to say, pay, pay, pay your tribute. Pay your tribute to him. Is it possible? He says it is. It's possible to both honor God and government. This plays into our whole biblical thinking of what does it mean to submit to government? God says, Jesus Christ says, it is possible to honor both God and government. There were those in this Jewish community who would disagree. In fact, when this tax began in AD 6, it was met with a complete revolt by a man named Judas of Galilee. In fact, you can read he just a little verse in Acts 5, 37, when Gamaliel says, remember, he revolted and he was squashed. He was, he was put down. 
And he led this revolt because he did not believe the Jews should submit and pay taxes levied on them by a godless pagan king. In fact, Josephus, a historian, tells us about his motivation. This is what he said to Jews who would bow down in his mind and pay this tribute, who would submit to this government authority. He said this, you're cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Roman and for putting up with mortal masters in the place of God. You're nothing more than a lily liver little guy who just, you're just gonna give in. You need to stand up to the, he looked at them, that, that's what he was saying. We've heard those types of statements, maybe not exactly like that. But if we submit to the government, oh my goodness, you're just, you're just nothing more than giving in to these, these pagan kings. This was the beginning of what was known in Jewish history as the zealot movement. These were the ones who were going and, and were stabbing Romans in the middle of the streets and trying to take out the Romans through guerrilla warfare. Judas and the zealots... They believed that allegiance to any earthly government and allegiance to God were fundamentally incompatible. And yet Jesus is going to look here with his answer, his very simple answer, and he's going to say, they're not fundamentally incompatible. Yes, there's going to be some differences, but they can and we can both honor God and government. Judas and the zealots believed that it was incompatible, and he's, well, that was, a, that was weird. Okay, Jesus, however, is going to disagree with that, that perspective of the zealots. Jesus is going to look and say, there are some duties to the government that do not infringe on your ultimate duty to God, one of them being paying the taxes. He says, there are things that we can do in relationship to our government that do not infringe on us as believers which implies that there will be some things that may infringe on our worship, on our perspective uh, from God. It is possible to honor these lesser authorities in our lives. They're not the ultimate authority. They are a lesser authority. In good conscience, because they were given authority and they were instituted by God himself. Our missionaries often do this. You ever thought about it? Yes, American citizens, but they're in another country. They don't want to draw attention to themselves because they want the gospel to go forward. So rather than staking down and making a big hoorah, they submit to, they submit to some pretty strenuous laws at times that you can't leave even the door of your house. You must stay inside. For, we, we've heard so many different perspectives. I remember uh, Tom said, talking to us about speeding. He's like, I don't ever speed. He's like, I get plenty of tickets, but I try not to speed because I don't want to cause more eyes to be focused on what I'm doing. I want to be able to work in this country for the sake of the gospel. And they, and they would often do that. Our missionaries do it, and we champion, and we say, great, wonderful. Jesus says he disagrees with it. The New Testament as a whole, we looked at these passages last week, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, where it says, submit to the authority, submit to the government. They are there. There is a compatible loyalty. We can, we can be working together, but it does tell us the church is not the state. There is a separation. The state is not God, but the church does not necessarily have to be against the state. It's not our fundamental draw-the-line position that anything in the government, we are against it. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what the New Testament tells us. There are moments where, yes, there is going to be a diametric opposition 
There are going to be places where our worldviews collide and we will in days ahead probably have to take stands, absolutely. But we don't have to just be against the state all the time. We're not in a constant state of warfare against them. Submitting to the government is not incompatible with following God. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are his. It can be done. We have to figure out how does that work? How does it happen? It's acceptable that there is some separation of church and state. He talks about Caesar and God. Caesar and God, he recognizes two authorities, two entities that exist. They exist in our life. The church, the state, we see that. They're not the same. Even though they are both authorities and occupy overlapping spheres of influence, the government, as we've learned, is always accountable to God. They have authority over us. Both of them do. They overlap in some of the, the, response, the, the leadership in our lives. And yet, the government is always to be responsible and accountable to God. So it stands to reason, if we can render something to Caesar and other things to God, they are not one and the same. The government may feel that it is God. The government may want to take that position, and not just ours, other governments as well, want to take that position of a God-like perspective, but they are not one and the same. Jesus did not have a vision here of saying that the state was to be ruled by the laws of God. If Jesus was a theonomist, saying that everything was supposed to be directly under my laws, he would have looked and said, nope, Caesar has no authority, and he needs to adopt right now all the Mosaic law. He didn't do that. He said that there is a difference, there is a distinction that occurs here. Jesus is telling the Jews, once again, you're a kingdom within a kingdom. You are my people living by my ways and my rule within a sphere of human government. We often want to think we're like Israel in the promised land, but we're not. One, we're not Israel. Two, this is definitely not the promised land. Okay, we are more like Israel as strangers and exiles in Babylon. They were the kingdom of God living in Babylon. They still had to follow the ways of God. They still were to follow the, the, the ways, the, the, the rule of God. And isn't that, isn't that interesting? What does Peter call us a couple different times already in chapter one and two? Exiles, strangers, in this world. That is, that is what we're like. We are strangers. We are exiles. We are part of the kingdom of God. We are living with a perspective of God's ways, but we are doing it within a separate kingdom, within the, the authority structure of the United States government, or whatever government you, you find yourself doing it. The government is, and the government was, distinct from God which I know that's fundamental, but it's important for us as we get into the understanding of how do we submit to, to government, understanding that there is a difference. We know in our, in our history, the, the idea of the erection of the wall of separation of church and state, Thomas Jefferson talks about it. It's not in our Constitution, just please understand that. That is something that's written, 1808 is after the Constitution. He writes it in response to, it's interesting if you, if you read the backstory and understand what's happening, the, the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut were concerned 
that the First Amendment didn't, didn't give enough, wasn't, didn't go far enough, and they were concerned about the government coming in and infringing upon their right to worship, their ability to worship, how they worshiped. And Thomas Jefferson, in response to that, says, there is to be a wall of separation, and it's, it's necessary. And he's talking about it's in response to not us being involved in government, not, not Christians taking the perspectives of government to, or God to the government, but the government infringing upon believers' rights to worship and how they worship. So he's looking, the, the founding father, I mean, the guy, the guy who basically, he, he wrote it, he understands it. What he's saying is there was a distinction and the government is not to come in and play God. The government is not to come into your worship and to direct and dictate and how. Now, Pastor delineated some of that this morning. Yes, the government can come in and talk to us about our building codes and all of that. But if the, if the government comes and locks our doors and says, you cannot worship, we're, we're going to have to figure out a way to find a wood, a wood somewhere and we're going to go meet and we're going to worship because the government can't stop us from worshiping because we are the church. The building is not the church. That's what Peter has said. We are the living stones that are, that are rising up. It's understood that the state is not God. He, by stating, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's, Jesus is making it clear that he believes the two are not identical. They're not. Remember the inscription? It said Caesar, the divine, and the high priest. Jesus doesn't buy it at all. He's not looking and saying, well, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's okay. That's, that's where Caesar's at. What he's saying is, he's, give Caesar his taxes. Give him his honor. Give him, give him what's due to him his respect, his honor, give him his taxes. But Caesar's not God. He's looking and saying, God is not Caesar. Tiberius is not divine. Augustus, he's not either. His son's not divine either. They are not what they believe you, they want you to be or that what they're claiming they are. He's looking and saying, they're not that because the government is not God. Human government is always run by humans, Okay. And there will always be this pull toward idolatry because of the fallen nature of mankind. There is this drifting away. And so we, we pulls us toward idolatry. Governments tend to accrue more and more power. They go further and further away from God. It is, it's, you see it through history. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. We, we see that, uh, sorry, jammed up. If people are not careful, they begin to believe that Caesar or the government is God. We can start looking and saying, wow, the state, it has all the answers. The state, it's everywhere. The state has all the authority that, that's granted to us, everything we need from the cradle to the grave. The state is the all-sufficient one. No, God is the all-sufficient one. God is the provider of all that we need. And there are some things in our life that the state can and it cannot provide. Jesus does not tell, tells us, not only tells us to respect the government, but he also tells us clearly that the government is not the ultimate. They are not the ultimate authority. We need to understand that. Government has authority, but it's not comprehensive authority. It doesn't matter what country or world we live in, the government is not God. So the authority and the power of God, or the government, is limited by God. It's not just limited in our, in our culture, our setting, by the Constitution or by the powers that be. The government's limited by God. What's the biggest inability of human government? We could probably go on for hours on that one. 
But really, when you boil it down, the biggest inability of human government is government cannot uproot sin. And because government cannot uproot sin, it is unable to fully address all of the issues that humanity faces because it can't deal with the sin nature. It's, it's necessary to deal with humanity's sin, to deal with so many of the issues that are happening in our life. The state will never be able to remedy that sin. It's, it's a restrainer of evil. It allows us to talk about what and who is able to fix the, the sin problem. The state's power is limited, and our allegiance to country or government is never absolute. That's, to me, that's it's an important statement to understand. The government is not absolute in my life. I still need to honor it, submit, respect. I still need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But Caesar is not absolute. My allegiance to God is absolute. That is comprehensive. We owe our allegiance to God. That's where Jesus is driving it. When he's answering all of this, he's saying, give to Caesar those things. But your allegiance, what, give, what, what do we give to God? We give ourselves. We give our lives. We give our will. We give our way. And, and, and Jesus is looking and saying, you can get all bent out of shape about all these political things. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You can still submit. You can still, be, still do that and still be in allegiance to me. But ultimately, we are in allegiance to God. He is our sovereign. He is the one who is in control. Last week we wrapped up talking about these institutions and about the purpose of those institutions. And God uses, when you look at the text, and we'll look at that next time, how God uses these institutions for the advancement of the gospel. When the government is doing its job and the family is doing its job and the church is doing its job, the gospel is able to permeate the culture. We, we have to be about our purposes but in each of those, those different perspectives, those different institutions, there is a call to submission. Problem is, just like government, all those institutions are filled with sinners. When I fail as a husband, is my wife still called to submit to me? When people in the church fail, are we still called to submit to God? When I fail as a parent, and if you ever fail as a parent... Do you still expect your children to submit and obey to you? Why is it then that when it comes to the government and they're filled with sinners and the government fails in its purposes, my instant thing is, I'm not going to submit to them. And yet, I would expect my children to, but I fail. I would expect that. It's the same word. Peter uses it throughout the passage that we're called to submit to God or to government. We're called to submit to uh, our employers. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. You know, one of the questions that has really challenged me and one of the commentators asked this question. If my wife submitted to me the way that I want to submit to the government or maybe have submitted to the government, how would I handle that? If my kids submitted to me the way that I submit to the government, how would I handle that? And yet it's the same word. It's the same Greek word that's used. So I ask you, as we, as we wrap up, just something to ponder for the next time we come together and talk about the passage in First Peter, which everybody's waiting to get to. Since we owe our allegiance to God, 
and he calls us to submit in areas of our life, how would you respond if your child, your spouse, your employee submitted the way that you might want to to the government? I owe my allegiance to God, and I can't get around the fact that the sovereign of the universe has called me biblically to submit to the government. Now, what does that all look like? See you in two weeks. But, Lord, we thank you that your word is practical, it's profitable. Lord, I don't like at times when it cuts to the heart. And yet, Lord, we thank you that it challenges us in so many ways. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in this world so that the gospel is adorned in a great way. Lord, that as people see our good works, they will glorify you. Lord, that as people ask us of the hope that is within us, that we can share that with them. Give us opportunities this week to do that, to to live for you, to follow your rule, your ways, for it's in your name we pray. Amen.